Welcome to worship. I'm Jason, and it is a joy to welcome you to worship with Schweitzer. If this is your first time worshiping with us, a warm welcome to you. We're so glad you've joined us. If you'll let us know that you're here, we'd love to send you a little gift card. Today, we're in week number four of Why the World is the Way That It Is. And we're going to hear a great sermon from Pastor Spencer as we open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you'd like to go deeper with this sermon series, with this sermon today, we'd encourage you to take a moment and go to schweitzer.church next. You'll find sermon discussion questions and you'll find groups that are taking up this sermon series and talking about and diving deeper into what we're going to hear today. We encourage you to do that. Next up is Stephanie, and she's going to share with us some things that are happening at Schweitzer, some ways we can connect this week. Let's join Stephanie. Hi, welcome to Schweitzer. I'm Stephanie. This Thursday, February 2nd at 1130, our second season ministry for those 50 and up will be hosting their monthly luncheon. This month, we'll be hearing from the Victim Center, a local ministry doing incredible outreach in our community. To guarantee your lunch, make sure you sign up by tomorrow, that's Monday, January 30th, online at schweitzer.church slash second season, or you can stop by the Blue Booth today. Next Sunday, February 5th, we'll be starting a new session of Grief Share. This weekly grief support group meets every Sunday throughout the spring semester from 2.30 to 4 p.m. This is a place where you can come and talk about grief and learn to navigate the loss of someone dear. And it's open to anyone in our community. You can find out more at schweitzer.church slash griefshare. Also, next Sunday, Pastor Jason will be hosting an informational meeting about an upcoming immersive learning trip to Mississippi and Alabama with the Perkins Justice Foundation. This trip will be happening in May, and you can come learn more about it next Sunday, February 5th at 11.45, that's after the second service in Room 101. We hope you'll attend. There are always lots of great opportunities to get connected at Schweitzer, including volunteering in the kids' ministry, learning in a small group, singing on the worship team, or volunteering in the Flourish Food Pantry. If you have more questions about these opportunities or want to learn more, you can find out about all of them and even fill out a connection card online at schweitzer.church or you can fill out the connection card that's in the pew in front of you and drop it off at the blue booth out back. We are grateful that you are with us this beautiful morning. Let's continue with worship. Thank you, Stephanie. Next, we're gonna get ready to worship. As we do that, if you're worshiping live with us, we encourage you to take a moment, say hello to your friends in the chat. If you'd like someone to pray with you, there's someone in the prayer room. They'd be happy to pray with you today. Now let's lift up our hearts to the Lord and let's enter into worship with gladness, with joy, with trusting in His goodness. Let's worship together. Oh 
Friends, as we've been going along in this sermon series, we've been hearing about the goodness of God. We've also been hearing about our own condition. And today, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we're going to hear about how each and every one of us has a state within us of a fallenness, separation from God. The church has given us language, a, a prayer called the general confession, a prayer that we can all say together to confess both who we are and how we need the Lord. So today, as we enter into a time of prayer, I want to invite you to join me in praying this general confession together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we confess that we have sinned and we are deeply grieved as we remember the wickedness of our past lives. We have sinned against you, your holiness and your love, and we deserve only your indignation and anger. We sincerely repent and we are genuinely sorry for all wrongdoing and every failure to do the things we should. Our hearts are grieved, and we acknowledge that we are hopeless without your grace. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us, cleanse us, give us strength to serve and please you in newness of life and to honor and praise your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Now hear this good news. We are promised in the, in the New Testament that because Christ is for us, who can be against us? When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he forgives us our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So hear this good news. When we confess, your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Now let's join with Jesus in the prayer that he taught us. Praying together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Next up, we're going to hear from Brett and Shonda Foster. They've become integrated in the small group ministry at Schweitzer. They found it life-giving. They've got some great things to share. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name's Brett Foster. Uh, this is my wife, Shonda, and we've been attending Schweitzer with our family since last summer. So we lived in Florida after graduation for nine years, and then we had the opportunity to move back to Missouri to be near family. Um, and so we took that opportunity, but we didn't have any friends here anymore. Everyone from college has all moved off and away. And so we were just looking for a church home. So we tried a lot of churches and went to a lot of different places and um, made this huge list of churches to try. And then when we got to Schweitzer on the list, it was the middle of the list. We walked in and I was like, this is it. Like I knew, I was like, the Holy Spirit was like, this is where you belong. The next week, it was for sure the place because when we pulled in, we were taking advantage of those close parking spots and um, parked in visitors parking because it's right by the door. And our six-year-old cried. Like he, he's like, I want this to be our church. And so that's when like we looked at each other and like we knew like, okay, this really is like God is for sure saying, this is where you need to be. So uh, you know, we started coming to Schweitzer in the summer and then uh, you know, we were kind of trying to figure out how can we get involved with the church. We've done much better connecting with like the church and the people in the church when we've gotten involved with more than just like coming to the service on Sunday mornings. And so, you know, like in the past, some of our like deepest friendships have come from uh, you know, getting involved with small groups and really connecting with people. So you know, we were looking to, uh, to do that at Schweitzer as well. And so when the opportunity came along to uh, join a small group, we uh, kind of jumped at it. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know people. It's good to see their points of view on just everything, on life, on scripture. My lens that I'm viewing our study through is different from yours and it's different from everyone else's in our group. And it's always leaves me thinking and like learning more. Yeah, what, it, what I like about the, uh, the, the study that we do on Wednesday nights is it's a chance to like dialogue with other people about maybe questions that I have, maybe questions that they have about the scripture. And, you know, it's something that you don't necessarily get to uh, get to do on Sunday mornings when you're watching a sermon. In today's day and age, with uh, you know, not just like social media, but also like COVID, it's it's easy to disconnect from everything mm -hmm. and like feel isolated and like that's just not, you know, in, in my experience, that's just not like the the best way to live. And so, like, I would encourage someone to you know just 
just plug into a small group and like you'll connect with people and you, you'll get more involved with the church and I think that's sort of a, a great way to push back against sort of this cultural thing that's been you know isolating us the past couple years. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Wasn't that awesome? If you'd like to be a part of groups ministry, we'd encourage you to go to swicer.church slash next. You'll find a listing there of all kinds of groups where you can find a place to belong, plug in, get connected. The groups ministries and a lot of other ministries are made possible because people like you are faithful with your tithes and offerings. Thank you so much for being generous in giving to the Lord's work. You can give today by going to swicer.church slash give or by using the Give portion of the Church Center app. Thanks for your generosity. Next up, we're on week four of Why the World Is the Way That It Is, Genesis 3. Let's dive in. Welcome today. My name is Spencer. So glad that you've joined us. Today is part four of our series called Why is the World the Way That It Is? We're exploring the first few chapters of Genesis as we start the year, not looking ahead, but back, all the way back to the beginning. And these first few chapters of the Bible really explain so much about why the world is the way that it is. It's these foundational, fundamental uh, chapters of the Bible. I like to think of them like this, like I've got terrible vision, I wear contacts and glasses, and when I can put on my glasses, this blurry, confusing, fuzzy world becomes clear. And that's what these first few chapters of the Bible do. They, they, they make the world clear. Now today we're going we're gonna to go to Genesis chapter 3. This is one of the most important, uh, fundamental chapters in the entire Bible. So much hinges on this, on this chapter in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn and follow along with us as we go through this. Um, so much of, of, of why the world is the way that it is comes into focus in Genesis chapter three. It's so, 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 so important. I just, I cannot overstate how important this is. So before we get there though, let's, um, let's remember where we've been. So in Genesis one, we started the series off several weeks ago. Um, God creates the world. He calls it good. He makes all this, this creation. It is, it is good. Day six, he makes us. He calls us very good. The Bible says that we are made in the image and likeness of God, that we are given this work to do in the world, uh, to, to care for it and tend to it as the Lord would, to use our, our, our work for, for His purposes. Um, we then moved into the Garden of Eden. That's what we looked at last week and, and how God has given us this world to tend to, this work to do. He's given us each other to live in perfect relationship. We're living in perfect relationship with Him. And, uh, and then comes uh, chapter 3 where it all falls apart. And so um, in chapter two, the Lord speaks to the, to the, to the man, Adam, and, and he gives him a commandment about, about some trees that are in the garden. And so this is what we read in Genesis chapter two. This is verse 16 and 17. It says, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to, to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
And we're going to keep that commandment in mind as we move to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to work our way through the whole chapter today. Here's how it goes. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now let's ask that question. Is that what God really said? Did God really say you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, that's, that's not what God said. That's not the commandment that we just read a few seconds ago. He said to, to not eat from a, from a specific tree. That's, that's what he said. But this is such a clever or maybe you should say crafty question that this serpent asks. It's a loaded question. You can't just answer with a yes or no. And so, and so Eve and this snake are about to, to have a conversation, which is just a funny sentence to say that Eve is about to have this conversation with a snake. And, and that's a, that's a, that's one of those things that, that you start to think about, like this Eve is having this conversation with this snake. Like, how do, you, how do you make sense of that? Uh, there was this famous theologian, his name is Carl Barth. And I guess if I have to say he's famous, he's not that famous, but in certain circles, he was famous. And one day this, this, uh, student asked him, he said, Professor Bart, did the snake really talk? And that's a, that's a question you might ask as well. Are we really talking today about a talking snake? Is that really, you know, what we believe? And, and there's certainly, um, some, some questions that, that may emerge for, for some of us as we, as we walk our way through this. And, and, uh, and as we've gone through this series, you know, we've not been really going diving deep into these kinds of questions. And, and part of this is because I don't find those questions all that interesting because I think they distract us from, from some of the bigger ideas that we need to tackle as we walk through these first few chapters of the Bible. And so, and so the student asks Professor Bart, did, did the snake really talk? And, and Professor Bart came back to the student. He said, you know, I don't really care about whether the snake talked or not. I care about what he said. And there's so much wisdom in that sentence right there. I, I care about what he said. Like, like you might be with us, you might be a little skeptical about some of the things we're reading uh, today. There's a talking snake, there's a conversation with a woman, and, and you might think to yourself, how do, how do I make sense of this? But don't let your skepticism um, let you miss the, the bigger point of what's being said here and this conversation that happens that is so true for all of us and sets the stage for why the world is the way that it is. So Eve and the snake, they have this conversation. Verse two, he says, did God really say? Well, the woman said to the serpent, you may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And once again, let's ask this question. Is that really what God said? Well, kind of. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree, which is an interesting little tidbit she adds on to this commandment that he said about not eating from the certain fruit. And it's an it's a, it's a interesting thing to me. that Why would she make God be more harsh? Um, why would she have a picture of God that is more strict? And that's just a, that's an interesting thing. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's an interesting thing to think that her picture of God is strict and harsh, whereas God has given her this commandment to protect her. But her picture of God is even harsher than the commandment. We keep reading verse four. The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. I think he says this probably scoffing and laughing. You're not gonna die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and here's the crux of the temptation that she's faced with that day. You have to pay attention to this, that the temptation is not for some 
you know, delicious forbidden fruit. The temptation is that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, that you will be able to live independent from God. That's the temptation. The temptation is one of, of hubris or pride to think that the creature can live independent from the creator. And so in other words, as you think about this, if you have no need for God because you're independent from God, then you are free now to make judgments about your own welfare, your own life and how it's gonna go and you're independent from God, your creator. This is a temptation of hubris, a temptation of pride that we can be above our creator. And so that right there is a template for really every temptation you're ever gonna face is this pride that puts us above our creator. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And just for clarity, he has been with her the whole time. He's not standing back in the shadows, like he's there with her, um, but not speaking up or doing anything. Like this is not just her fault. He's just as culpable in this as she is. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, which is just a sad, sad sentence. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And no one said, it's a serpent. The serpent deceived me and I, and I ate it. It's like, it's a woman's fault. It's a serpent's fault. It's everyone's fault, but it's my own fault, really. But, you know, it's always someone else's fault. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then this next line is so important. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Don't miss the prophecy there about Jesus, the Messiah, that he will crush the head of the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit, food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. So Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So even in the rebellion, the Lord clothes them and provides for them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that is, their angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a sad, sad, sad chapter of the Bible. In shorthand, this is what we call the fall, that humanity has fallen. And and, and this chapter introduces all that has gone wrong with the world. Because while God created us good and he gave us this life where we were made in the image and likeness, and we have this work to do and this perfect relationships with one another and with him, all of it falls apart now. All that was lost because of this temptation of pride, it falls apart. And so we have here this this temptation where we thought we could live independent of our creator. And now as you look at the world, it's it's fallen. And now we live with the consequence of this sin, the consequence. And we see the cost of it in Genesis 3. We talk about what we call the curse, which is these three things that the Lord says, first to the serpent and then to the woman and then to the man about the cost that came with their, with their rebellion, their, their sin. And so let's just list some of the things we see here from Genesis 3 that, that really articulate the cost that has come with our, our rebellion to live above our creator. First of all, we see that, that our relationship with creation is now broken. And as you look upon the world, you certainly see this. I mean, with pollution or environmental disasters and, and problems with, with the natural world, there's certainly this brokenness that takes place. Uh, we see our relationship with work has become broken. While God has given us this good work to do, now some of us live with work as an idol. Others of us live with toil where we just kind of get by or, or our jobs are meaningless. And so we have this, this broken relationship with work that God has given us. Our, our relationship with one another is, is broken. And we're going to really see this as we work through the next few, few, few weeks of the series with Cain and Abel and Noah and the flood and then the Tower of Babel that, that our relationship with one another has been broken. We see this in the world, of course, all around us. Our relationship between the genders and the marriage relationship is broken. Did you catch that line that the Lord says to Eve that, that he, that is the man, will rule over you? There's a brokenness that now takes place in, 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 in marriage because of because the reality of sin and this, and this, this fallenness that we have. And then most sadly and, and most importantly, our relationship with our Creator, the Lord God Himself, has been broken as we have been banished from His presence and pushed to, to live in this land east of Eden. We live in a, in a fallen, broken world. And the evidence of this is all around us. On the heels of uh, World War II, there was this uh, theologian, kind of famous. <laughs> you probably, again, if I tell you he's famous, it's not really famous, but there's a theologian who's kind of famous. His name is Reinhold Niebuhr. And he had this statement. He said, you know, reflecting on the, on the tragedy of 50 million people who were killed in this war, the tragedy of, of atomic bombs, the tragedy of, of, of camps, and the tragedy of violence, reflecting on this, he says, that um, the doctrine of original sin, that is the idea that all of us are fallen. He says, he says, this is the only doctrine of the Christian faith that can be empirically proven. Like you, you can see it. You can see this fallen world that we live in. G.K. Chesterton, another uh, famous writer, he says that, that um, the, the doctrine of original sin is an observable fact. That's how he describes it. He says, you can see it in the streets. That's his line. You just look around the world and you see the fallenness that's, that's all around us. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, in Romans chapter 3, he describes the reality of, of this fallenness like this. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. <clears throat> there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then to sum all of this up, Paul writes this really famous line, Romans 3, verse 23. He just simply says, for all, all, one more time, all, all of us, every single one of us, for all, he says, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is classic Christian thought that, that we are all sinners, that every single one of us in, in our own hearts are inclined towards selfishness and self-interest and sin. And this is true for, for all of us. And as obvious as it might be, like Chesterton says, it's, it's out in the streets, it's an observable fact. Like as obvious as this may be, this is also a countercultural kind of idea. Several years ago, I was um, preaching this series on kind of the basics of the gospel. And I remember this one message in the series was about sin. I don't preach a lot of sermons that are just about sin. But I had this sermon about sin. And, and after the sermon, after church that day, this, this lady came up to me and she said, she said, I was offended by this sermon today. And I was new to preaching. Like I didn't really quite know what I was doing. I was thinking to myself, oh no, what did I say? And I'm trying to, you know, go through my mind like, oh, what did I say? You know, I, sometimes I want to say something one way, but then sometimes, you know, you're in front of people. So you say things and you kind of say it differently than you meant to. And, and so I was like, I was thinking, oh no, what did I say? What did I say? And, and then she says, I was offended because I don't want to come to church and be told that I'm a sinner. And I was kind of like set back for a second. I heard that sentence like, what now? And she said, because, because it makes me feel bad about myself. And then she said, and it lowers my self-esteem. I give her those moments where you have no idea what to say to somebody. Like this is, I had no idea what to say here because, because the truth is, um, this is not a feel-good truth, but you're a sinner. And so am I. And so is every person who's ever lived. We're sinners. We have fallen this temptation, just like Adam and Eve, to put ourselves above our Creator, and it comes with a cost. And this is true for all of us. And so our own hearts are inclined towards evil. Our own hearts are inclined towards self and self-interest. This is true for absolutely all of us. And, and I'm just as broken. I'm just as selfish. I'm just, I'm just as sinful as any other person. And this, this is classic, traditional Christian thinking that, that this sin is true for all of us. And this is just simply not what you're going to find in the world. It's countercultural to the world. I mean, when was the last time you heard someone in the media talk about, you know, sin? Well, never. I mean, that's a church word. That's just something we talk about in church. Or, or think about this. When was the last time someone wronged you? And, and, and the way they apologized for it, they said, they said, like, I'm so sorry because I've, I've sinned against you. Like no one talks like that. No one, no one owns up to this kind of wrongdoing. Instead, when someone has, has done wrong, you might hear something like, like this. Um, hey, I'm so sorry that happened. It was an accident. Or, or someone might say, 
I'm so sorry that, you know, that happened because ah, I really, it wasn't my intention. Or, or maybe, the, maybe they say this, my favorite non-apology, I'm so sorry if I've offended you. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is how people in the world talk. We, we, don't, we don't own up to our wrongdoing. We, we talk about our mistakes. We talk about offending someone. We talk about my, my intentions as if, as if that was relevant. But in the reality of the, the fact is, we're sinners. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. And this is, this is, this is countercultural because as you read Genesis chapter 3, you realize, you know what, we don't have a mistake problem. We don't have a, I'm going to offend you problem. We don't have a, uh, my intentions were, were off kind of problem. We, we have a sin problem. And this is true for all of us. And it's countercultural. It is different than how the world talks. One time I had this, this woman um, schedule an appointment with me because she wanted to come and talk to me about, about her marriage. This happens from time to time in my work. And, you know, I'm not a marriage counselor and I don't try to pretend to be. I respect people who are. And so I don't, I don't try to step into that realm. I'll listen to someone. I'll pray with them. I'll give them some biblical counsel if it's appropriate. But I'm quick to refer to a, to a marriage counselor when that's, when that's appropriate. And that's a good thing. If you struggle with marriage, you should go see somebody. Um, but she wanted to talk to her pastor. Things were, were struggling. And she w- came and told me that, you know, things were, were rough at home and that, and that there was um, someone else in her life that she, she confessed to me. And as we were talking through this, she talked about how she was miserable and had been for some time. And then, and then she just, she asked me this question. She said, you know, she said, does, does this make me a bad person? And I, I knew what she wanted me to say. I knew she wanted me to like reassure her, kind of pat her on the hand. No, it's okay for you to, you know, leave your family for this other person. Like she wanted me to, to reassure her for her wrongdoing. But I but I looked at her and I said, I said, does this make me a bad person? I said, well, yeah. Like it, it, it does. Because you're a sinner, just like me, just like everybody. Your heart's inclined towards evil. And this thing that you, you're having, you're, you're doing, that you're wanting me to reassure you on, you're, you're, you're doing harm. You're doing wrong. What you're doing is bad. And, and the reality is, like, we need to own this. This is, this is, this is what we have to do. Now, this is not a message you're going to hear from the world. The world is going to give you a different kind of message. The world is going to tell you, you know, you need to follow your heart. You need to uh, live your passions. The world's going to tell you that you got to be true to yourself. Or one of my favorite ones, you got to be authentic. You got to live your authentic self. And every time I hear people in the world talk like that, I just I roll my eyes and I shake my head because I think to myself, oh my goodness. What terrible advice is this to go follow your heart? That is absolutely awful advice because the truth is my heart is sinful. My mind is self-interested. I, I am a person who, who has fallen and lives in a fallen world. So to go follow my heart is just to invite hubris into my life. It's just to invite brokenness into my life. It's just to invite a life that's lived even further apart from what God wants. And this is, this is the message that we see in the world. I mean, the truth is, we are fallen. We are sinners. We are inclined towards evil. And we, we need to own this about ourselves, even though it's incredibly countercultural. There was this thing in the Bible that Paul said um, in 1 Timothy. He probably said this on a lot of different messages and sermons, but he wrote this down in 1 Timothy, and it's this great sentence, great statement. I think it's one of these things that we should all internalize and memorize and apply to ourselves. But here's what he said. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, here's something that you need to take to heart. 
You need to memorize this, write this down, pay attention to this, internalize this, accept this for yourself. You, you, need, to, you need to pay attention here. Don't ignore this. So here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full atten- acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a pretty good sentence. That's a pretty good statement. That, what that does, that does require acceptance, right? Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Like, I don't have to be perfect to come to him. He welcomes everybody, no matter how sinful we may be. He, he, everybody is welcome to come. And even, even really, really, really bad people, whoever those may people may be, still have hope. It's a great line, but he's not done yet. Because he says, okay, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And he's got one more part to it. He says, of whom I am the worst. Ooh, the last part hurts. But this is how Christians think. Sin is not somebody else's problem. It's my problem. The fallenness we live in is not caused by someone else, it's caused by me. The, the brokenness that's in the world is, 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 in, is in me. I stand just as much in need of Christ's salvation as anyone else because my heart is just as evil as anyone else. I contribute to the problems of this fallen world as much as anybody. I, I contribute to the dysfunction of my family. I contribute to the problems, the struggles in my marriage. I, I contribute to the toxicity in my workplace. I contribute to the division that happens in our nation. It's, it's, it's my problem just as much as anyone else. This is classic Christian thinking. It's not somebody else. It's me. And this runs exactly opposite to how the world t- uh, thinks and what the world is going to push on us to, to justify ourselves in light of other people. But classic Christian thinking is to hold this truth that this sin, it resides in me. But we also need to say, hope is not lost. One of the things I love most about the opening few chapters of the Bible is how the last few chapters of the Bible tie so closely into it. So as we think about how this this tragedy unfolds with this temptation for hubris that all hinges on a tree. I, I can't help but think about some other things in the Bible that also happen on trees. Like this tree, this fruit that came from it and the temptation for hubris that was born out of it came with these consequences and separation and fallenness and brokenness. That's all true. But one of the consequences as well was that our creator didn't give up on us. He sent his own son for us. His son was given as a sacrifice on our behalf, burying our sins for himself, and, and he died upon a tree. And then I flash forward to the end of the Bible where his son, Jesus, the Messiah, restores all things and is the victor across, across the creation. He makes all things new. And in this new heaven and new earth, there's the city, and in the middle of the city, there is this this garden, and in the middle of this garden, we read this. This is Revelation chapter 22. It says, Then the angel showed me, this is John speaking, the apostle, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, listen, 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 stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing, not the brokenness of the nations, but the healing of the nations. And then verse three, no longer will there be any curse. There's this good news that comes in the midst of our brokenness that our creator is not done with us. And so we ask, you know, why is the world the way that it is? Why is there evil and pain and sickness and death and violence and disease and just 
add to that list whatever you want to. Well, I mean, the short answer is, is because in our hubris, we, all of us, have thought that we could elevate ourselves above our Creator. We've thought that we don't need God. We can live independent from Him. And this has come with these consequences that invited so many problems. And one of those consequences is that God Himself came to rescue us. He came to save us. He came to give us life for us. And so when He restores all things, He brings healing to the nations. Yes, we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. We have to accept this and realize this, but also know that in that fallenness, there is an invitation for every single one of us to be restored to new life. Let's pray. And so, Father, today we we read this chapter. Oh my goodness, it's so tragic. The sin, the fallenness, the destruction that happens, we recognize this is our story because every single one of us bears this sin. Every single one of us, every single one of us has fallen. Every single one of us is inclined towards selfishness and problems and drama and dysfunction. And we contribute to the problems of this world. We just need to accept this. We also know that you've come to save sinners, just like us. You've come to offer us redemption and healing and hope. And for anyone today who doesn't know this for themselves, may may we come to this this place of faith where we, where we can put our trust and our faith in your salvation that you offer to everyone to come and find new life in you, life that eventually will lead to the restoration of all things. And so, Father, we put our trust, our faith, our hope in you. We just put a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin and would you lead my life? So we submit ourselves to you to live in obedience and in a relationship to you as you have designed us to live. We thank you that even in the midst of our sin, our selfishness, our brokenness, you never give up on us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us in worship today. Hope you were encouraged. Hope you saw some things and heard some things that speak truth into your life, truth that is tangible for where you're living today. We'd encourage you to take a moment and share this this message, share this word with people around you, somebody who needs to be encouraged and challenged in their own walk in faith. A big thank you goes out today to people who helped produce this service, to Alec, who's behind the scenes, to Stephanie for sharing the the good word of what's happening here at Schweitzer, for the worship team, and for Pastor Spencer. Thank you so much. Thanks to you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week when we'll be in week five in why the world is the way that it is. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. And remember, God is good all the time.
Yeah.